This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Hitachi, realizing a sustainable society by improving social, environmental, and economic value for customers and stakeholders. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Investor entrepreneur Joanna Coles and the Prof G Show podcast host Scott Galloway Join the Post for one-on-one interviews about the digital innovations that will help address the effects of the coronavirus pandemic on manufacturing, the supply chain, and customer demand. Let's listen. Good afternoon. I'm Eugene Scott, a political reporter for The Fix at The Washington Post. And I'm honored to welcome my guest this afternoon, Johanna Coles, an investor and entrepreneur, a media legend. Welcome to The Washington (laughs) Post Live. Well, thank you for that wonderful introduction. I hope I can live up to it. I'm sure you will be great. Thanks for joining me. (laughs) So for the last six months, at least, you know, most Americans have been social distancing to some degree, Uh, many working and learning from home, like myself, uh, some even using technology to socialize. Uh, The way you see it, can you tell me how people are connecting differently now than they were prior to the pandemic beginning? Yes, I think that people are, are connecting, uh, unfortunately, uh, much less productively than they were before COVID began. And I think of us as coming from a 3D world into a 2D world, uh, much harder to communicate on Zoom meetings. I mean, in one way, it's very interesting how it levels people out. I think the hierarchy of the tall, pale male as I think of them, that run corporate America is probably over now because everybody gets the same size square box on Zoom. And it's much harder to do the sports chat at the beginning of a meeting because you can't really have that informal communication on Zoom. So I do think when someone gets the box to talk on um, Zoom, uh, it's harder to interrupt them, which happens to a lot of women and minorities when you're in a meeting in real life. And actually, that's been equaled out a little bit on Zoom, but it's much less creative, I think. And you don't get the serendipitous comments that you get uh, in real life. And of course, the the tremendous trends in retail, I think, are really interesting what's going on there, how we've shifted from going out to stores to doing all our purchasing online or a good chunk of our purchasing online, I think is super interesting. So you're talking, you're talking a bit uh, to some degree about like perhaps a change in priorities in terms of the conversations um, that we usually would see happening in a more traditional workplace environment. Uh, who is that benefiting and who is that possibly hurting, this new direction and focus? Well, I think for small, young businesses, this is a very interesting change. And I think you see, you know, retail in particular, this is a wonderful opportunity to get in front of people. And I think particularly in the in the terms of the beauty business, think about the beauty business and how makeup and cosmetics used to be sold. It used to be sold in department stores. You know, Estee Lauder would buy a desk or a a space in Macy's and they would rely very much on their person having communication with customers wandering by, wanting to be inspired or maybe wanting a makeover. And what you realize is nobody's going to go back to doing that anymore. Nobody's gonna try lipstick samples with the sort of weird wiping off of the tissue, which you think is cleanly, but it's probably not very clean. Uh, no one's going to try a mascara brush that someone else has tried. No one's going to use a, you know, a lipstick that's already, or not a lipstick, an eyeshadow that's been smudged by somebody else. 
Um, and we already know that Gen Z would prefer not to actually have to talk to real life beings in a shop. They don't want communication with an actual shop person. And so you see all the circumstances aligning for, uh, you know, new beauty companies to launch, which are pure plays. They've never been in a retail space. There's no communication other than digitally with the customer. And the customers maybe never even sampled the product and they're fine with that. So I think we're breeding this sort of lack of human communication between seller and between purchaser. And it's a really interesting mega trend, I think, which has been accelerated hugely by COVID. And I, I think what we're losing is the humanness of our transactions. And I think when you look on Twitter in particular, which I know isn't the real world, but it's part of the real world. And you see the animus with which people uh, shout at each other across social media. I think a lot of that is because we don't have the softening part of real human communication. And uh, though I used to find it extremely tedious listening to guys in meetings swapping sports scores or talking about the Fortune 500, I realized that it did have a sort of softening of the edges for people. That kind of um, casual conversation can build, uh, build trust and build relationships. And I, I think we're seeing that frame. I, I would agree. There's certainly, um, it seems like fewer opportunities perhaps to find common ground uh, with coworkers that would naturally be found on an elevator or around a water cooler. And I think people are now putting themselves in a position where they have to find a new way to do that. Um, and, and, and you mentioned the human connection that some people have when making makeup purchases. And I, I feel like that's a great segue to a, an area of expertise for you. I mean, you you ran women's magazines for quite some time. And I'd say your sweet spot is communications and relations. Would you would you agree with that? Uh, well, it's one of my sweet spots. Yes. I mean, I great. think understanding audiences and understanding consumers uh, is probably my superpower. And I'm really interested by what um, what e-commerce e has managed to do during this time. I mean, I was, I'm, you know, ashamed to say one of those people who was stockpiling uh, toilet tissue during the pandemic, partly because I had seven teenagers living with me and I did not want to run out of toilet roll. And who knew that I would get it from China? Chinese toilet roll is very different to American toilet roll. It doesn't have a tube in the middle to put somewhere, it just comes incredibly tightly packed and it's quite difficult to find a place for it in the bathroom. Um, uh, I'm getting off track, except that, uh, um, except that you discover all sorts of things about yourself as a consumer. And I do think that, um, again, playing into Gen Z's extreme facility with digital and their lack of wanting real communication. They have no interest in going and trying products in the way that my generation thought it was fun to go and, you know, try every single mattress in 1-800 mattress stores uh, or sleepies. No one does that anymore. They just order from Tuft & Needle or they order from Casper. The thing comes, you know, compressed in a box and they think nothing of sending it back if they don't like it. It's a very different, uh, it's a very different retail pattern. It is. It's a very different uh, shopping experience. And, and I, I wouldn't say there's an absence of relationships or communications. And, and I don't think you'd say that either, but it, it just looks very different from perhaps what it looked like uh, prior to this moment. And, and I just want to use a personal example of mine. 
I, I recently made a purchase um, from Fenty Skin. Um, and that mm -hmm. is something, right? That's a brand that historically I would have gone in to figure out how to use this product and what, which product works best for me. But, you know, I'm, an, I'm a millennial, I, an elderly millennial, but a millennial nevertheless. And uh, through, through Instagram and digital media, I think a lot of Gen Z uh, shoppers and consumers feel like they actually do have a relationship with uh, the brands and the brand ambassadors that are trying to get them to consume products. Would you say that's also the case? Yeah, I mean, that's undoubtedly true. And obviously, um, digital advertising, sophistication now with a camera, you think of Snapchat, you think of Instagram as these platforms, TikTok now, uh, where influencers can, can reach consumers in a completely different, much more informal, fun way, uh, is clearly driving a lot of this. And as we've seen, all sorts of businesses that are purely uh, that exist only on on social media. So absolutely, and I'm I'm going to say that the Fenty skin is working. You look very dewy, Eugene, very dewy. <laughs> I appreciate that. I I have learned that, as you know, that uh, you have to invest in um, quality quality products if you want good uh, responses. Um, uh, you, but well, something you've else certainly done that. <laughs> I appreciate that. You talked about sharing a house with seven teenagers. Did I hear that correctly? You did. It was like living in a permanent focus group. <laughs> Can you talk a bit about like how relationships have changed uh, in a pandemic? Uh, how, how are we doing life together differently than we previously were? Well, I think we're all going crazy, right? We're all craving company. It's uh, people are getting very bored with the people they've been uh, cramped together with. But just going back, you, you made a really interesting point about how things are changing in the office. And I do think that having meetings on Zoom or whatever, Microsoft Teams, whatever your tech choice is, has changed a little bit the hierarchy in the office. And I think it's going to make corporate hierarchy. Uh, I think it's gonna challenge traditional corporate hierarchies. And if you think of big corporate meetings, which I'm sure many of us have been to far too many of, mm -hmm. um, even, even the chatter at the beginning is always focused around the most powerful men in the room. And it, I say men because traditionally these meetings are led by men and it will be about their sports teams or it'll be about their kids trying to get into college. But whatever, they will dominate that conversation and everybody else will be trying to sort of chip in with their relevant experience. There is none of that now because it's not really possible to do that. And so as a result, you end up listening to people's contributions more uh, more seriously, much harder to interrupt people and women and um, minorities in particular are used to being uh, interrupted. And once you've got that box on you, your um, level of contribution is exactly the same as everybody else's and your voice uh, has the same authority as other people's voices. And I do think that there will be a subtle shift in corporate America because of the technologicalization, if you like, of meetings. I think it will be really interesting when companies go back to work together to see that there is more equality in the airtime that people get in meetings and there will be less of the sort of male frat boy corporate um, chattering, which has really dominated the beginning and the ends of these meetings. I think it will disintegrate. And I think that's very good news for increasing diversity in companies. 
And ultimately, as we know, companies with diverse management have much better results. I was going to say, many people would say that that's a shift that's long overdue and quite unfortunate that it took a pandemic for us to get here. Sure, but it's one of the upsides of the pandemic. And I don't think Google, you, you know, uh, I don't think Zoom, I don't think Google Meet, I don't think uh, Microsoft Teams uh, probably spent much time thinking about this because they were all taken slightly aback by, by the pandemic and the growth of these particular apps. Um, but it would be really interesting to see some sociological research around it and whether or not uh, women feel more confident to speak up, whether or not junior people feel more confident to speak up, because it's also very visible when you only have one black person in the room or one woman in the room, that suddenly becomes a much more visually stark reminder of the lack of diversity still we're dealing with. And junior people end up having exactly the same platform as the senior person, which I think gives them more confidence. Absolutely. I, I imagine there are quite a few dissertations that will be written on this moment in time uh, in terms of well, how we interact so. with one another. I hope so. I mean, it's incredibly yeah. interesting. And it's almost as if we're also televisual now anyway. We're also media literate that I think, you know, you sit and you observe what people's backdrops are like. Yours is extremely stylish. You said you mentioned before <laughs> that it'd been put together for you by a stylist friend, but it looks fabulous. Yes. You look like you're speaking from Instagram somehow. Um, <laughs> and uh, and you begin to notice visual symbols in a way that we don't when we're just sitting around the table together. That's very true. Definitely got to give a shout out to my best friend, David, for doing this for me. Um, well, but it's I very talk well about... done. I, I, I really like that there's a wonderful sort of beige or taupe. I think it's a stone, but it could be a pottery vase, which just hints at artistic sophistication in a very cool way. So David is a potter, like all the pottery he made. So that's, uh -huh. that, it is very cool. Yeah, he's amazing. He's amazing. There you go. Um, all right, shout out to David, who I'm sure yes, pottery is available out. on davidpottery.com yeah. or whatever. Yes, no, it's on my Instagram. I'll, I'll, please check it out after. Um, but in addition to... In addition to corporate relationships, um, I'm really interested in talking about personal relationships that you mentioned. You mentioned family um, with yourself. Mm -hmm. um, you, I mean, obviously, with the women's magazines you wrote for or edited, should I say, lots of conversations about dating and friendships. Um, what are some of those changes we're seeing? Well, one thing I think um, has definitely emerged from this is the enormous benefit of close family when you are stuck in a situation like this. And what I've heard repeatedly from people up and down the age change is how much they've appreciated their family, even when their family drove them crazy. And I think for a lot of people, COVID, um, especially if you haven't actually been impacted, and of course, if you've been impacted, uh, either personally by experiencing COVID or you've had a family member be ill or God forbid die from it, uh, then your experience is clearly very different. But a lot of people have said to me how they have appreciated this time, how actually an enforced slowdown uh, and attention having to be given to one's family has actually been an extraordinary gift. I certainly felt that having my older son back from college and living with us in a way that we hadn't expected uh, was, I was, it was an exceptional gift that I never anticipated living with him again. And it was absolutely terrific. And 
having his friends to stay and his brother and their girlfriends allowed us to have a big noisy dinner every night where everybody shared in the cooking and I think that's an experience that to some extent has been borne out by other people um, whose kids have come back from college and they've made the best of it and I think it's allowed people to enjoy a simpler time where you're just talking to people but the flip mm -hmm. side is that people who've been living on their own have been very isolated super hard mm -hmm. to date online I mean you read about people having zoom dates online but that gives you no sense of whether or not you actually have chemistry in real life uh, mm -hmm. so it's an incredibly complicated challenging time and I think people are dying to get back to 3d life and touching and hugging and dare I say kissing um, but mm -hmm. but having much more fun it feels yeah. like we've all been forced to be chased in a way that mm -hmm. um, it can have some benefits, but we've experienced the benefits and we're ready to get back out there again. Absolutely. I, I don't think I realized how touchy of a person I was until I wasn't allowed to touch at all. I have older parents and family members who I have to take precautions with uh, to keep everybody safe. And, and being apart from that um, has been very difficult for many of us. Well, and I think that we don't yet know, and the science yet hasn't been done, on the extreme value of touch. We know it makes mm -hmm. us feel better. We know that a relationship with lots of hugging and touching and kissing, and if you're in a married relationship, lots of sex is actually very good for you because it releases all sorts of chemicals within the body that make you feel better mm -hmm. and make mm -hmm. you like the person more. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and having a shortage of that, I think, is playing out. I think it's added to our sense of feeling divided and at each other's throats and this sense that somehow America feels unstable at the moment and I think if we were all able to communicate more and actually hang out and see each other uh, we would feel less uh, angry and less ang anxious. I think not being able to see people and spending too much time on your own uh, leads to great anxiety. We know it's not good for us. Yeah we do have studies to support that and you were just talking about the importance of how uh, we communicate and how uh, we digest communication, or should I say information. Uh, when, when we look at how we're consuming content, uh, how we're reading magazines, uh, how do you see COVID-19 uh, changing how we engage with uh, news and entertainment? Well, I think there's a tremendous listlessness among people because we're all spending much too much time online. I mean, I spoke to someone the other day who said they were halfway through 16 uh, new shows on Netflix. They were halfway through the first episode on 16 new shows and they couldn't commit. And I think when you turn all your attention to spending time on the screen, you're trying to multitask usually at the same time. Even if you're on a kind of corporate Zoom, you're probably texting under the table. And mm -hmm. I think it's uh, you know bad for our attention span and it makes people feel blissless and, and jangly and it's harder to commit to your full attention to something. Understandable, and, and we have an audience question, I think that's pretty consistent with what you're uh, just discussing uh, from Minta Phillips, uh, who lives in North Carolina. Uh, she asks, how do we cope with all of the information we are getting now that we are spending even more time online? Uh, how do you separate the truth from the noise, especially when it comes to news? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, there's no question we're being absolutely bombarded 
uh, with information. And of course, this is a great time if you're a content maker, and I am, it's actually a great time because you know people are captive audiences sitting at home looking for really good content. I think you have to be disciplined. I don't think we've taught people um, really good hygiene around, uh, uh, around tech literacy. I, I think it should be a class at school. I think we should be thinking about it much more than we are. I think you have to give yourself breaks. And I think it's absolutely fine to say no. I think it's fine to take a break from certain apps. Um, I've found that I'm using Twitter much less than I was. I now use it to communicate, but, but very little because it gets me so wound up that it's not really worth it. And I think it's fine to take a break. And I think it's also fine to have a, a daily habit where you say, I'm going to spend 10 minutes or 15 minutes or half an hour reading these three things. These are going to be my steady uh, input of information. I trust these outlets. Um, and then to cut off at the end of that. I think there's this tremendous anxiety because the web is constantly on. It never switches off. It's always tantalizing you with exciting new, um, new news or new information that it's very hard to pull away. I mean, it's very interesting, the social dilemma, the documentary on Netflix, which has caused an enormous mm -hmm. amount of uh, mm -hmm. uh, conversation and extremely interesting and thoughtfully put together, um, points to this, that we all need to, you, you know, we know that companies are um, very thoughtful about getting our attention. Everybody is in the battle now for our attention and that we have to be able to switch it off and, and put it down and that's the value of having real friends. And it's harder when you don't have them around. I don't want to have a Zoom tail. I want to have a proper cocktail with someone. I want to sit and have a real chat. I don't want to have dinner with friends over, uh, over the internet. It's not nearly as satisfying. So I think it's okay to switch it off. And, you know, if in doubt, just turn to books. And the other thing is that we're now at, at, at this point, and this was one of the genius moves, I think, of Twitter to put that three S. Uh, at the end of a tweet so that you know it's only three seconds old. Uh, they've somehow tricked us into believing that we have to be on top of all information all the time. Otherwise, yeah. somehow we're not a real participant in our world. And that, of course, is nonsense. It's absolutely fine to check the news twice a day. You probably don't need to do it more than that. Um, it doesn't matter if you miss, you know, 30,000 of Trump's tweets. Your life is not actually going to change. And um, of course, you know, it makes it hard to relax this sense of uh, constant white noise in the background. Um, but I do think picking up a book is very helpful. I think it engages a different part of your brain. We know that tactilely touching the pages actually impacts the way you take the information into your brain. And there are so many great books out there. And if you can't find a good new one, turn to a classic that stood the test of time. I find that very comforting. That's some good advice, and I think uh, many an author appreciates you putting that out there right now uh, to uh, give give people another option, another way to engage and, and be revitalized during this very challenging time. It's an extremely challenging time. You can, of course, watch The Bold Type, which is the show that I executive produce loosely inspired by my life, which is on Hulu and Freeform if you need some uh, lively entertainment, that will make you feel good about the world. I'm in interested in how people seek out these scary, dark shows um, while we're living through a dystopian reality. Um, but I think it's, it's good to have fun stuff too, so I can highly recommend The Bold Act. Awesome. Well, 
I have way more questions, but we are out of time. Uh, so I'll have to leave things here. I'm so glad you were able to come and talk with us and I hope we get to see you again very soon. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Eugene. Keep using the Fenty, it's looking good. Awesome, thank you, thank you. We have much more of our program coming up. I will be back with Scott Galloway in just a few minutes. Please stay with us. Welcome back. I'm Eugene Scott, political reporter for The Fix at The Washington Post. My next guest is Scott Galloway. He's a professor of marketing at the NYU Stern School of Business, and he's also an author and well-known podcast host. Scott, welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you for joining uh, me. Thanks, Eugene. Good to be with you. Awesome, awesome. I would like to start by asking you about this explosion in the use of technology uh, that we have seen during COVID-19. Uh, do you see this as an era of digital transformation? Is this something uh, that we think could stick or is this just pretty temporary? So I, I think that almost when we talk about digital, it's a little bit talking about electricity and that is it's now just such a fundamental component of everything we do. Um, I think technology is a tool. Uh, obviously, it's helping us scale, just as the assembly line or the printing press helped us scale um, innovation. But what I mean, really, at the end of the day, what you have here, as largely facilitated by digital, but also consumer changes in consumer behavior, changes in regulations coming down. If we're going to talk about the acceleration in telehealth or remote medicine. But loosely speaking, COVID-19 is more of a accelerator than a change agent. I think a decent exercise for any organization to go through is to take the three biggest trends in your industry or your company, take the slope of those trend lines and then extend them 10 years out or where they were supposed to be in 10 years and ask yourself, are we there today? So I see COVID-19 as more of an accelerant. Digital is obviously uh, and a uh, uh, key component of that. But more than anything, it's a burning platform. It's how we rethink our lives. It's us being forced to be at home more. It's us being forced to figure out new ways to, to adapt. The digital is a tool, but it's, it's, there's a lot of converging forces here, Eugene. When you think about your own life, uh, professionally and personally, what, what are one of uh, the biggest ways in which you've had to rethink your life? So uh, that's, a, that's a generous question. Um, I think if you're blessed, I think there's a, a meaningful opportunity and a profound opportunity as, as I think about the pandemic. And the meaningful opportunity is that if you're blessed with resources and access to technology and you're in an industry where you can, where you can continue to do what you do, you know, what we do can largely be distilled to zeros and ones, Eugene. So we, there's no reason for us to slow our productivity. And I'm very much into this idea of functional speed, and um, variance. Uh, Jerry Rice, Hall of Fame wide receiver, uh, never was the fastest guy in the field, but he could supposedly accelerate and decelerate faster than anybody. And if you think about NASCAR, races aren't one on the track, they're one in the pits, where if you shave two seconds off your pit time at 220 miles an hour, that's an eighth of a mile. If you're blessed with the ability to work right now, I would argue that you want to take advantage of your functional speed and you want to work around the clock. Um, I'm blessed in that I have a supportive family, I'm economically secure, and what I do can largely be done remotely. I'm in Cabo San Lucas in a windowless conference room right now coming to you. So I basically decided I was gonna work 24 by seven until there was a vaccine. I mean, and to be blunt, it's getting exhausting, but I think I will win my race, whatever that race is, because I'll shave some seconds off in the pits while there's greater variance. 
that's the meaningful opportunity. I think the profound opportunity and something I'm trying to do, and I, I, it's a struggle for me, is that if you think about it, we're in a crisis. This is the crisis of our generation. And we give medals to young men and women in uniform who demonstrate real grace and courage during times of crisis. I think there's a lot of people out there in our own lives that are struggling economically, intellectually, emotionally. And so I think this is a real opportunity to extend some grace and some generosity to people who need help and reestablish or cement and catalyze relationships in weeks would otherwise would have make, taken years. So I think there's a meaningful opportunity to lap the competition by working very hard right now because of the variance. But I think the profound opportunity and something I'm trying to do, and I, but I have trouble because I'm oftentimes too insecure to really express my emotions, is to reach out and demonstrate grace and generosity. And the profound opportunity is the repair and cementing of relationships. And that's something I'm trying to do. I'm better at saying it than doing it. But I think there's a professional and a, 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 a really profound opportunity for relationships. I would certainly agree. Uh, I've seen reconciliation happening uh, and during this pandemic between families and, and friends and other uh, individuals who've had broken relationships uh, just because they realize how precious life and time is uh, in ways that aren't always as clear when you're not in uh, you know such a crisis. Yeah, agreed. Can you talk a bit about how companies uh, could do a better job of, of valuing the individuals and connecting with it, their employees in the ways that uh, you think matter most based off of what you just described? So I advise a lot of very big companies and I'm, I've decided I'm going to try and spend more time with small companies. I've um, and I'm bragging right now only because I'm rapidly insecure, but I've advised the CEO or the CMO of the seven of the 10 largest companies in the world in the last five years. And I've decided that I'm kind of done with the old and the powerful, and I want to spend more time with the young and the possible. So I've been talking to a lot of small businesses, and I think that small businesses need to do a few things. Um, and one is as an enterprise, and one is as a manager. As an enterprise, I think that small businesses, and this is an aspirational, we don't like to talk about it at conferences, I think you need to look at every cost and either eliminate it or negotiate it down. And that is everything from data to your broadband, to your office furniture, to your lease, and even look uh, uh, in a very, what I would call Darwinian way about your employee base. I believe that capitalism involves shedding people and, and firing people uh, when you don't think you can support those jobs. But then I think the key is to become exceptionally generous and help, uh, help uh, people such that they're not afraid economically and they can transition into another job. But I think that small companies need to be very, um, very uh, have an open and honest and sober conversation around right-sizing their expense base. Uh, I think there's also tremendous opportunities in the fields of healthcare and education and there's sectors that are gonna just see a massive influx of capital. In terms of a manager, you know, that's something I didn't figure out until later in life as I've been the CEO of several small companies, um, I had generally assumed that everyone just wanted what I wanted. That I, you know, my goal up until about the age of 40 or 45 was just to be more and more awesome and more and more rich. Those were really the only things I wanted. And assumed that everybody else wanted the same thing. And that if they bought into my dream and did what I did, did and did what I told them, that they would uh, get rewarded. And what you realize is that different people have different objectives and that loyalty is a function of appreciation. And appreciation is a function of empathy. And if you take the time to really try and understand that you know, your way may not be their way and they might value other things and to demonstrate with your actions and your time that you are committed to their success 
and 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 specifically what their vision of success is, uh, you'll have lower turnover because. Like the thing that the companies have in common that have added tons of shareholder value is they have incredible retention rates and are seen as an accelerant for people's careers and good people stay there. I think kind of the dirty secret of small, medium-sized businesses, is a small core group of very talented people, uh, oftentimes the youngest employees, are responsible for the majority of the value add. And I think you need to develop a reputation as someone that is not only a great organization to work for, but as a manager, as someone who's seen as empathetic and has a real vested interest in their success. Uh, my dean at NYU, a guy named Peter Henry, my former dean, I just thought he was so successful because he always got the sense he was really fighting for you, that he was fighting for you first. So uh, hard conversation, sober conversation around right-sizing your costs as a small business. Companies don't go out of business because they're bad ideas. They go out of business because they run out of money. And two, trying to create a sense of empathy, even in hard times, that you have a vested interest in their success. Awesome. I would like to talk about a bit how that looks or what that looks like uh, in the context of uh, coronavirus. I, I spoke earlier with Joanna Coles about the ways in which companies are embracing technology to make our day-to-day -day interactions uh, and processes safe and efficient in, in a social distancing uh, time. Uh, how do you see this trajectory continuing in a post-COVID world? Look, one of the things are, first is, I think it's just acknowledging um, one of our species flaws and that is because death is so difficult a concept and so terrifying a concept to wrap our heads around we purposely are terrible at uh, estimating the cadence or the velocity of time and that is we think time is going to go much slower that we're going to get much more done in a certain amount of time we don't almost all of us make the mistake of not recognizing how time pass goes and i would say as it relates to your business where it intersects with COVID, as you think about a vaccine or life getting back to normal Take every estimate, take every projection, prediction around timing and when your business and your market gets back to normal and triple it. I just think we are, we've entered into consensual hallucination with each other and our, our superpower as a culture is optimism, which in this instance is a comorbidity because, I mean, I remember in the spring talking to some very successful people who are on the boards of hospitals and pharmaceutical companies, and they had just assured me by September that the wealthiest people and frontline workers would all have a vaccine by now. And I, for the first time, just in the last 30 days, you've seen start, people start to acknowledge that life probably doesn't return to any sense of normalcy until probably 2022. So I think it's an honest conversation around this might be the new normal. And there's the second question you need to ask is, is the impact on your business? Some, some businesses are blessed. It's great to be an online grocer. It's great to be Zoom. It's great to be in the business of online education, which is what I'm doing. It's better to be lucky than to be good. For the rest of companies, they have to ask themselves really a question, and that is, is this shift, the exogenous impact in their business, a structural shift or a cyclical shift? And oftentimes, people want to convince themselves that it's a cyclical downturn and not a, a structural downturn. If it's a cyclical downturn, you should be able to find the capital to kind of hold out, use it as a great excuse to cut costs and then come back even stronger and, and rip back even more profitable. And a lot of companies have done that. If it's a structural change, I think it's tempting to try and convince yourself it's cyclical and things will come back. And I would say a third of the companies I speak to haven't really come to grips with the fact that, A, this is, this is the new normal. And even when it gets back to normal, they aren't going back to movies. There won't be as nearly as many restaurants. Office space is going to incur a tremendous demand destruction. There are no reasons that airlines should have taken this long to start laying off tens of thousands of employees. Business travel is not coming back. Resort or leisure travel may come back and even stronger, 
the business travel is permanently impaired or 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 um, changed. So one, uh, an honest conversation around when's this when the, when does this in fact end, and how to prepare for that uh, financially and in terms of your business model. And two, uh, honest conversation around whether these changes are are cyclical or in fact if they're structural. You spoke previously about online education and how well uh, that sector was doing in this uh, pandemic. And I wanted to pivot to a question we have uh, from an audience member, uh, Lorraine Milan, uh, who lives in Oregon. And she's asking, how do you close the digital divide uh, between the rich and the poor? Uh, and, and this is an important question and issue, especially when it comes to online education. Wow, we're going to need a bigger boat. I mean, I think a lot about education. Uh, the reason I'm here speaking to you is through the generosity and vision of California taxpayers and the Regents of the University of California that gave me an undergraduate education at UCLA and a graduate degree from Berkeley for a total tuition of $7,000. And, you know, gives uh, an unremarkable kid who's the son of a single immigrant mother remarkable opportunities. And we in education, including myself, have lost the script. We have a caste society in the US. We like to think we're a meritocracy. We're not, that's bullshit. It's a caste system, largely indicated by two things. A, did you go to college? And B, where you went to college? And if you're in the top 1% of income earning households, you're 77 times more likely, that's right, 77 times more likely to get into an elite university. And if you look at elite universities, essentially, we led in two cohorts, the children of rich people, and then freakishly remarkable middle-class and lower income kids uh, to make us feel better about the fact we're no longer public servants, but we're luxury goods. So we are going to need to move back in terms of our role in the digital divide. We are going to need to move back to a situation where you small and big tech and also cut the cut the costs, the extraordinary explosion of administrative costs. I believe every decision made by university leadership over the last 20 years has been with one aim in mind, and that is to reduce their accountability and increase their compensation. We need to dramatically reduce costs and through a, a mix of big and small tech take the admissions rates at a place like UCLA when I applied it was 60% of, of applicants got in. Now it's 12%, it's literally five times as hard and we need to substantially reduce the cost. And as a society and our elected officials need to fall back in love with the unremarkables. Our society right now is focused on turning the top 1% into billionaires instead of taking everyone else and trying to figure out how to give them remarkable opportunities. We need to fall back in love with our unremarkables. I can prove to you that 99% of our children are not in the top 1%. That is not the test of our society. The test of our society is what opportunities would provide the other 99%. I think, it, I think it all leads to lower costs and much greater admittance rates across, across what used to be the upward lubricant of income mobility in our society, great land-grant public universities that have become the sand in the gears and the primary agents of a terrible caste system in the United States. So I think it it starts with higher education. Hmm. Scott, this may be too simplistic of a question, uh, but but given what you just described, uh, what would your take on online college uh, be right now? Is, is it good? Is it bad? Uh, is it moving our society closer to uh, where you said it should be, uh, the, the role of higher education in, in terms of uh, helping us all be better citizens? I think it's going to be, we have a tendency, the fastest way to process information is binary zeros and ones. So we have a tendency to bifurcate all decisions into either or. It's not an either or. It, the majority of universities and students going to college will be a mix of online and offline. And one of the dirty secrets of higher ed is you can take 50% of, 
of the classes and probably put them online without much of an erosion in the quality. And the social stuff, the leadership, the socialization, the spilling into adulthood, that stuff scales really well on its own. But faculty who don't, who have an entrenched interest in growing their compensation faster than inflation for the last four decades, you basically are obstructionists to the idea of new technologies or anything that threatens their ability to continue to decrease their accountability and increase their compensation. So I think where we ultimately end up is a place where, you know, the, the Ivy League is great spectacle, but it's really not that meaningful. They're luxury brands that basically become hedge funds that, that offer classes to the children of their investors. The thing where we really, where the rubber meets the road in our society is places like California State Colleges, pu public land grant, University of Texas, Michigan, Florida State. Those are the places where really we change America. And again, if we take 50% of our classes online, we effectively double the capacity. So I think the innovation around online learning is fantastic. I think the real growth won't be in online only. I think that's fantastic for the unbundling of certification like what Google's doing. And we need to fall, we need to stop, we need to stop this process of checking everyone's college degree at the door for the greatest wealth creator in the history of mankind, that's US corporation, and start finding ultimate or alternative on-wraps into a better American life without a college degree. But as it relates to college, I think the end state is a mix. It's a hybrid model where we have some in-person classes, but a lot more online learning. And we let the social stuff, the stuff that the young people are very good at, scale on its own. So I don't think it's an either or. I think it's a mix. I think the the answer, if you will, or the promised land is a hybrid where we embrace small and big tech to dramatically increase enrollments and dramatically decrease costs. Well, speaking of uh, changes in online education, can you talk a bit about how you've seen some changes in how we consume and use social media uh, in a pandemic and, and what which of those changes are beneficial and perhaps should stick around after all of this ends? Uh, I'm not sure I see a lot of upside. I think that social media is largely responsible for the perversion of our elections, the explosion in teen depression, especially among young girls. Boys bully uh, physically and verbally. Young girls bully relationally, and we put these nuclear weapons in their hands called their mobile phones and Facebook or Instagram, where they not only don't get invited to a party, but they see it play out in real time while they're in their room alone. I think these organizations are corrupt, and until there's a perp walk, we'll continue to do the math and decide that it is uh, more beneficial economically to break the law than it is to comply with it. If there was a parking meter in front of our house that cost $100 every 15 minutes, but the ticket was 25 cents, we would continue to break the law, and that's what Facebook continues to do. The FTC is no longer a regulatory body or a countervailing force to private power. It's a co-conspirator and the cheapest insurance company in the world that in exchange for 1% of the market capitalization of Facebook indemnifies them against anything they've wrong up until done up until that point. Facebook continues to take political advertising. If I could show that the Washington Post had run ads paid for by the Russian government uh, inciting violence or creating uh, insecurity around our elections, the Washington Post would be out of business. And uh, we don't apply the same standards. I think that social media has been negligent. I think it's hard to group them all into one group. I think Mark Zuckerberg is the most dangerous person in the world uh, and has proven that with technology, he can scale sociopathy. Uh, and until there's a perp walk or until these fines start meaning something such that the algebra disincentive actually works, I think social media will continue to be a menace for our society uh, and also attack the happiness of a lot of households because of uh, this, what I would call an emerging uh, crisis in teen mental health.
I'm sorry, I'm not here with the message of hope, Eugene. <laughs> no, I mean, I think these are very important points to make, and I, I certainly have heard others make them, and it, it would be great to hear you expand upon how you believe the government should regulate uh, these companies to improve, uh, you know, the mental health or the financial health or the electoral processes of uh, what's happening here in the States. Uh, well, for, I'm, my go-to is antitrust. I think competition uh, solves not all of these problems, but a lot of them. I don't think I think it's ridiculous that Facebook was ever allowed to acquire WhatsApp or Instagram. I don't think Google should have a 93% share of a business or a sector that's $150 billion. We've never allowed that. If the DOJ hadn't moved in on Microsoft in 1999, Google would have never been born, and we'd all be saying, I don't know, bing it. Uh, Amazon should be split into three companies, AWS uh, and also Amazon Fulfillment. We have a concentration of power here that is just so ridiculous that it it squelches growth. If you think about CNBC and the Wall Street Journal would like us to think we live in an era of innovation. New business formation has been cut in half. There were twice as many companies being started in the Carter administration than there are now. The Carter administration was the era of innovation. But we like to think that anyone can be a billionaire because we've heard of someone who got a job at Google and became rich. But the reality is the concentration of power here means that there's fewer startups and what are the fastest growing parts of our economy. So by breaking these companies up, we would oxygenate the economy, we'd broaden our tax base, we'd VC funds would take off, there'd be more jobs, there'd be more opportunities for small companies. The only stakeholder that loses in antitrust is the CEO. And unfortunately, because of the two class shareholder act uh, or classes, the CEO of these companies wants to sit on the iron throne of Westeros, not just one of the seven realms. So antitrust is absolutely where we should start. Unfortunately, unfortunately, the question is, have we been overrun? Uh, Amazon has more full-time lobbyists in DC than there are sitting US senators. Facebook's PR and spin department, comms department, is bigger than the newsroom at the Washington Post. So a key step to tyranny is when private power overruns the government, and government is no longer a countervailing force, but a co-conspirator. And I worry that we've already hit that point. So one, I think the government and our agencies and the funding of the DOJ and FTC have to grow a backbone or, re, or rediscover their, their backbone. And we need initially just to break these guys up. Antitrust is one of the few things the government always gets right. It creates shareholder value. It oxygenates the economy. We broaden the tax base and they start complying with the law as a, as a means of differentiation. So antitrust is where I would start. Scott, I have so many more questions and so little time. We, we are, in fact, are out of time right now, and uh, we need to leave things there. But I really wanted to appreciate uh, you, and thank you, should I say, for taking some time uh, to join us uh, today at Washington Post Live, and hope we see you again very soon. Uh, thanks very much, Eugene. I love the Washington Post. Thanks for all your good work. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.